what do I have to teach? The Buddha's, the first noble truth of the Buddha which is life, life is dukkha. It doesn't mean it's awful. It just means it's very complicated and it, it's not, it's complicated. <coughs> that, uh, how to say it without saying it really as it's suffering. Challenging, Challenging all the time. But um, getting born is the beginning of having things to grieve in a, in a certain way. There's an early saying of the Buddha where he says, anything that's dear to us causes pain. And that sounds like such a demoralizing thing to say. You say, well, you want to have a religion like that? Anything that's dear to you causes pain? That, that doesn't sound very uplifting. But some people who were here, there may be one or two people who were here in this room some years ago when a woman who had not been here for a little while because she had been... Uh, she had a baby. She'd been with us for weeks and weeks and weeks as she got more and more obviously ready to have a baby. Um, and then she wasn't here for a while and we understood that she undoubtedly, and she had in fact had a baby. And uh, perhaps it was a couple of months later when she came, I think without the baby, just for the morning, had a babysitter and came without the baby. And everybody was very glad to see her and greeted her. And we found out the information about the baby. And she said, it's great. She said, but nobody told me. She said, when I was announced that I was pregnant, everybody said, great, mazel tov, congratulations, this is wonderful. And when I had the baby, everybody said, great, mazel tov, congratulations, this is wonderful. <laughs> nobody told me that you have a baby and you mortgage away your whole entire heart for the rest of your life, you know, that, that you do. That in a certain way, when we shared, and you know, today I'm listening, everybody, many people's child this, that, and great things like going to hike in Thailand or explore here, not things that are in themselves, uh, the difficult things has this or that or that an affliction, but uh, life itself is so complicated and you don't know what might happen. I was thinking about it Last night, like yesterday, I, I, I guess I turned on the news briefly last night and uh, heard somebody is shaking their head, no, 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 I shouldn't have listened to the news. Aside from the terrible things in the whole world here and in the Middle East and terrible things that are happening, uh, two boys are missing who went out fishing in Florida. And I, I, I always, I, I don't know what to do with it. I think to myself... It's so touching, the amount of aid and coast guards and police and boats and aircraft that are out looking for those two boys who I haven't heard. I hope they find them. They were experienced boaters and sailors. And I think we use so much effort, properly communal effort, to go out and look for two missing boys, and yet we go and make wars and really kill other people's young boys who are in the best of health. You know, that it's, it's confounding to me, really. Uh, and an eight-year-old somewhere in the Bay Area who's missing for two days, she was there and then she wasn't there. And then when you think about, uh, I was thinking about going back to, and I obviously I am, 
uh, going back to talking about the Four Noble Truths, when I was here the last time, I said, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to do really the basic fundamentals of Buddhism, the Four Noble Truths, uh, which includes the Eightfold Path, and we'll talk about that again. And we'll talk about the three characteristics of experience, anicca, dukkha, anatta, the, th the three characteristics of what's true about everything. It's a fundamental teaching of the Buddha. And uh, so I started in, I said, okay, today we're going to do the first noble truth. And we did the first, maybe. Because by the time it was 11 o'clock, I said, well, I haven't gotten past the first noble truth yet. We'll start with the second next time. But maybe, I think we're back by the first again. Because I was thinking about more meanings to uh, the word dukkha, and more meanings to... Uh, a deeper understanding of what it means that that life is inherently unsatisfactory. The uh, the uh, the construction of the word dukkha has uh, it's related in Sanskrit to uh, the uh, the uh, a wheel of a cart, and uh, in the time of the Buddha, a ride in a cart over a bumpy, unpaved road as the wheel bumped over, turned on its axle and bumped over the, 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 the road, uh, was an uncomfortable ride. And uh, so that's what the word dukkha is related to, the kind of bumpy ride. And every time I remember that, I think to myself, it is a bumpy ride, you know. And sometimes we, this life is a bumpy ride. In, never mind that we don't ride in ox, ox carts. Somebody I was reading recently said, was recounting a story of being somewhere in Tibet or Nepal and actually went in an ox cart on a bumpy road and said, it's really bad. You know, but <laughs> but uh, we are going in things with great you know, uh, shock absorbers and it's a bumpy road. You never know when someone's going to call you and say their fishing boat didn't come back in or this child is missing or this happened, or that happened, or I just got this diagnosis. Because, um, oh, I, I, I know whose voice it is said the, 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 uh, the message of this share is that you never know. You really don't know. There was a time in my uh, young adult life when some, uh, some young children, classmates of... Uh, one of my young children were killed on a, uh, because a car rode up on the sidewalk in Kenfield. Now, 50 years ago, and I remember it as being really uh, such a shift in my own mind. It was not that I didn't know at that time that there were automobile accidents or not that I didn't know that sometimes people died untimely deaths and children not only in accidents, old people not only in accidents, they suddenly die. Uh, or they get sick and they die. And But somehow the fact that it happened on my street, not so far from where I live, on the very same street where my children walk to school every morning, and it could have been them, but it wasn't them, was such a, uh, a, 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 a friend of mine used to say, there's knowing with a small k, and knowing with a capital K. And some things you know with a small K, and then all of a sudden, 
you know them with a capital K, and then you can't unknow them. Once you know that, you cannot unknow it. I remember thinking that when you said that when I said things to my children, like when they left in the morning, and say I'll see you later, that that's a guess. You know, you you can't, you you it's actuarially a good guess because most of the time you will, but actually you don't know that, and we never know that. Now that you know, and I'm looking around and I see people seem. This is not a cheerful way to start a morning, but it's also a true way to start a morning because you really never know. You get in the car, you don't know. You don't get in the car, you don't know. Um, the only thing I think you really know is that you don't know. And I suddenly have a deeper understanding. The uh, Sansanim, who was the founder and the only really main teacher of the uh, what? Wait a minute. Uh, Providence, Providence Zen Center, whom I met only once. It was an old man. He was out visiting in San Francisco, and I went to hear him teach. And his students said of him that he said in answer to all questions, he said, you only have to keep, don't know mind. If someone asks you something, you say, don't know. Which makes it sound like he's not very learned or not very erudite or not able to make up his mind. But really, it was a question of you never know. You never know. You could. I mean, he was a learned person. He, could, he did actually. He was informed about a lot of different things. But you don't know. I'll see you tomorrow as a guess also. And I think that really the place to move into that so you can get out of that, kind of like a dirge almost, is to say, that's true, and everybody realizes it at some point, that, uh-oh, life is really, um, what's the word? Um, I always have trouble on this one word. Contingent. Ah, I found it faster than usual. I am here this morning because Joe picked me up, because her car worked, because there was gas in the tank, because she remembered to email yesterday and say, do you want to go? That because I woke up this morning, it could have, everything. It's contingent on my health still being good. It's contingent on there wasn't an earthquake last night. Everything is contingent. And everything could be different, but it's not. It's just like this. So, But to live like that, you really have to think this is radical, uh, radical knowing. This, it's like this, but it could be otherwise at any time. And I think that I, I think that, that keeping that in mind for myself is not, wow, that's a drag. You can't put that out of your mind. I have to worry every second. I think you have to not miss any second because you don't know. I think that the, the only possible response to that um, is knowing it and say, you, we just do this. Because we don't know. I don't know if I have another one year or 20 years. I don't, you know, don't have 50, but who knows? Uh, you know, no, I don't have 50. But, <laughs> ma- but, but my grandfather made it to 98, so oh, you don't know. Um, it's not about that. It's about not living frightened. Because the condition is frail altogether. All That's a fact. The condition is frail, and everything is contingent, and you don't know. But 
you could live fully and love fully. I really thought about that this morning particularly because a number of people were mentioning close kin, children, daughters, sisters, mothers, fathers. Uh, and there's something about having connections to kin that, uh, that uh, trumps in a certain sense, although it's a word I'm not trying to use. <laughs> <laughs> That carries more weight. <laughs> uh, that carries more weight than the fact that, that, um, that you know that that everything is. Um, uh, uh, what's the word for that? And everything is impermanent. That nothing lasts. We won't last either. William Saroyan, when he was dying said, I always knew that everyone died, but I didn't think it would happen to me. <laughs> and I think that most of us, even, even that we work around with in healing professions or we've been with people who died. So here's an, here, I'm glad to tell you this story. I didn't know if I would. My friend Verna, who I've been mentioning in our prayers for some weeks, died a week ago. And she was... She would have been in uh, August of 2016, 100 years old. So she was very old. And uh, she, a year ago, was traveling around the world still by herself, meeting <laughs> friends all over the place to go to the opera in Sydney, in Beijing, in Berlin, in Sofia, Bulgaria, in every place that they possibly gave productions of the Wagner Ring Cycle. She saw in her life 78 rings. That's more than anybody who didn't conduct the ring or sing in them. You know, maybe more, I mean. It, and she said, well, you know, I did about three a year. And I traveled with her to some of them. I didn't even travel with her. She traveled alone. She made all the arrangements. I met her there. And then we went to productions together, but we stayed in the same hotels often. And uh, she went until she couldn't go anymore. And she had tickets for the spring, and she couldn't go because instead she went to the hospital, and a number of systems were breaking down, and... It was clear that she couldn't travel anymore, and she went. She refused to live in a place or an assisted living or a rehab, and she went home. And in the end, she had people with her all around the clock for the last two months, three months, and she died very quietly in her bed with uh, no pipes, no tubes, no morphine. Although she probably had cancer in the end. That that probably was the proximal cause of death. But she had frail old body also. When I first met her five years ago, six years ago, I, and she told me her age, I said, how fortunate you are that your body has held up so well. And she said, my body is a complete mess. I, ju <laughs> I, I just like to see the rings, so I keep going. You know? So that, that was how I met her. And when I when I went to visit her for the, you know, at home, 
a month or two ago when it was clear that she wasn't really going to get out of bed anymore. I, I wondered if she was going to talk about operas that she wasn't going to see anymore or having given up the tickets. And she, she was very excited because the drama of the um, birds and the, bird, and the bird feeder outside of her bedroom window you see that bird? He's not supposed to be there. He comes every day. He's making a mess. He's throwing the seeds on the floor. He's pushing out all the other birds that are supposed to be there. I'm trying to figure out how I can get my helper to put something else that that bird won't be there. She really stayed alive and interested. She said, you have to step out in the back. I want you to see that in the corner of the white rose bush that I had planted six months ago, it looks great, go and do that. She was interested in something other than her own situation, until the last minute. And I, I considered it such a gift to be able to go and hang out with her because I need lessons in how to do that. I, you know, the how, to, how, to, how to not die before you actually do is really like a very important thing that I think we don't often have enough role models of. And she was fortunate enough to have her wit about her and her mind with her until the end. So that that was a great thing. She could tell me the best conductor and the best this and the best that until the week before she died. And she never said a discouraging word. But maybe it's not discouraging if you live to be 99. But um, I think about the thing that I, I wanted to tell you because you knew I had been mentioning her, so I wanted to tell you about her. And I also wanted to tell it to you because I, I really have been reading um, a couple of really wonderful things. One of them is a book by um, Sokni Rinpoche called Carefree Dignity. And he says this, Being carefree, you can fit in anywhere. If you're not carefree, you keep on bumping up against things. Your life becomes so narrow, so tight, it gets very claustrophobic. Carefree means being wide open from within, not constricted. Carefree doesn't mean careless. It's not that you don't care about others, not that you don't have compassion or unfriendly. Carefree is being really simple from the inside. Dignity is not conceit, but rather shines forth from this carefree confidence. One of the um, translations, the one I like the best, of the Buddha's last teaching, the Parinibbana, Parinibbana Sutta, is the, well, is translated this way. The next to the last sentence he is said to have said is, um, transient are all conditioned things, means anything that arises passes, nothing lasts. And then the last line he is said to have said is move into the future with confidence. And I, I like that very much. Um, this kind of uh, confidence or wide open, being carefree, you can fit. Carefree means being wide open from within. Let's see how I want to explain that. Here is Verna. I wish Verna was a good example. What was happening was what was happening. And she wasn't making it a problem, you know, that uh, uh, I thought at some point, at one point six months ago, uh, when she was in the hospital about something, she had said to me, I want to talk to you about my funeral and I want you to have such and such a part in it. 
So I said, okay. But then she recuperated from that illness, and we didn't talk about it. And when she was home these last weeks, we didn't talk about it. And I kept thinking, well, I'm supposed to bring this up, maybe, and talk about it. But I thought, no. My, the best I have learned from my friends who I know who do work with people who are at the edge, who are doing palliative care and hospice care, is you, talk, you, you be with the person where they are. And what they want to talk about, that's what you talk about. And it didn't matter what, whether, what, what happened at her funeral. It mattered what happened when I was with her, that she should be comfortable and feel warm by my visit. See, so come and you talk about the birds and the bird feeder and the rose bush in the back and uh, how wonderful this particular home health aid was. And, uh, and I learned from that that she could live in the current advocacy for the birds and interest in the roses and appreciation of her health care workers and not in a preoccupation about what she was missing or the pain in her body. The second noble truth is the cause of suffering is imperative in the mind that things be different from the way they were. I've said that line a lot of times in my life. I've never said it just after I talked about Verna, but it's exactly the right thing to say just if I talked after I talked about Verna. There was never an imperative with her that things should be different. They were what they were. You say, well, yes, she had... Um, such a great life going all over the world. She really had an extraordinary kind of a life. Um, but she was also widowed at a very young age with a young child and had to manage and take care of the child and uh, support the family and do everything else that she had to do in her life. She, she was at one point the president of the Wagner Society of San Francisco. She knew a lot about Wagnerian <laughs> opera. But the, the, the um, I, I always end up saying this, in the movie Kundun, oh, wait a minute. In the movie Kundun, the character who plays the young Dalai Lama, the movie that I, that I try to see about once a year, you know, it's, it's all available on Netflix, and um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a recreation of uh, the life of the current Dalai Lama, and it was made with him as the um, consultant on it, so presumably it's as accurate as uh, it could be. And there's a scene early on with the... Uh, uh, of a young incarnate Lama, the person who's been selected is taken off to be trained by Lamas, and he's probably seven or eight, or meant to be seven or eight, given the stature of this child, and he's learning from his teachers, and he's reciting the Four Noble Truths, and he says the second truth uh, is uh, the cause of suffering is clinging which is another way of uh, tanha, clinging, which is another way, uh, it's a formal way you sometimes see that life is dukkha, the cause of uh, dukkha is tanha, suffering, uh, clinging, which I actually see that people uh, translating these days as addiction, which I think is a, is a good 
translation. It doesn't mean addiction. We usually think of addiction as addiction to drugs or addiction to alcohol. I think addiction to thinking in a certain way, addiction to certain ideas and certain habits, addiction to certain views and not being able to let go of them. He says the second sentence, he says, the cause of suffering is tanha. And um, the teachers stop him and they say, no, 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 too much ego in that. So he thinks a minute and you think, well, you know, this is a, this is a screenplay, somebody wrote it. But maybe it was just exactly like that. He says back, he thinks, and then he says, I am the cause of most of my own suffering because of the habits of my own mind. And I, that, it's for that sentence that I watch the movie every year or so. Because I think, first of all, it's so cute to watch this really little boy say that. I don't know any eight-year-olds who can say that. But I don't know any 40-year-old boys who say that either, or 60-year-old boys who say that either. Very few. Or, or girls, for that matter. That I am the cause of most of my suffering because of the habits of my own mind. Verna had the habit of being interested in whatever was going on with her and not being self-referential self about it. Look at the bird. That bird is not supposed to be in my fear, you know. I really need to change that. I'll get my person to change that. So it doesn't mean not doing anything or being completely quiescent. She did or didn't do something about the feeder. But she was interested in that. She was not thinking about, oh, I wish I had gone to one more opera, or I wish I weren't sick, or I wish I weren't dying. Uh, because she, she certainly knew she was. Um, it's very hard not to, not, to, um, not to have any wisp of clinging. When you think about it, uh, I think it's sometimes very subtle that the, the, the mind would like it to be just a little... How, well, how, how do I want to phrase this so you can think about it? Uh, in an unusual setting the other day, I was thinking to myself, my mind is completely at ease. The unusual setting was this. I uh, went to San Rafael on Saturday afternoon with my husband. We went to a movie in the Rafael, and we came out, and there was a, a bicycle race in downtown San Rafael. Anybody saw it? It was amazing, wasn't it? Yeah, they had... I left before the professional... Did you watch the professionals at the end? Um... So we watched the, the not professional racers who looked pretty professional to me. And they had a one-kilometer course with a whole announcer stand and judges stand. And big groups of men and then women raced this one-kilometer course for 45 minutes. So the race was 45 minutes long. And they went around it about every 50 minutes, 50 seconds. 60 seconds, that's very fast, that's 60 kilometers an hour, which is 40 miles an hour, 36 miles an hour. That's pretty fast to be making these tight corners in a very squished together 30 riders riding on each other's wheel. And uh, we had just been watching three weeks of Tour de France, so we were very much in the... You know, some people watch a lot of tennis, we watch a lot of bicycling. 
So they're standing outside the movies, and uh, they had rails and buffers on the rails for about an hour, watching people whoosh, whoosh around them. You know, and by and by, he said, you want to go home? I said, no, no not really. Uh, you know, that the... I said, you know, my mind feels completely at ease. I have no place I need to be, nothing I need to do. I have nothing invested in this particular race. I don't even, I don't know a single racer in that race. My body doesn't hurt. It's interesting. I'm paying attention to it. So I'm very alert because every time it goes by, wow, yeah. Uh, and I thought to myself that we often think about. Um, I didn't think that then, but I thought about it afterwards. We often think about moments of serenity, like being on the top of Spirit Rock and sitting on the bench, and the breeze is blowing on you, and the sun is setting, and it's so quiet, and the deer go by. And that's true. Those are potentially very serene moments. You could be sitting in that same setting and thinking about who you're mad at and who, who you have a grudge against, and it wouldn't matter how many deer grazed near you. But moments where you realize all of a sudden there's nothing I need. I wasn't hungry or thirsty or tired or in pain. I didn't need something more interesting. And the absence of all need, and I didn't need to be home, I didn't need to check my housing machine, didn't need to get any place. And I thought, really, this is a plain moment in life. There are plenty of plain moments where the mind is just at ease. It doesn't need anything. Like new stimuli, like, okay, I had enough of this, let's go do something else. Think a minute of times when your mind is completely at ease. Can you think of one? How many people thought of one? Aha, good. Everybody turn to a person next to them who put up their hand and tell your situation to them. What did you think about? Two minute. Two minute tell. You tell two minutes and then they'll tell you two minutes.
Hello. I couldn't tell you this before because of confidentiality, but I was Bernie's hospice volunteer for the last several months. Ah. So I've been visiting her, had been visiting her every week up until so cool. yeah. Yeah, And I have even more stories than the ones you told me. She's amazing. She was incredible. She was yeah. amazing. Yeah. Not a bad word ever came out from her. No. She was wonderful. Oh, I'm so glad for you. Yeah. It was a great experience. Yeah. Oh, I'm. I'm so glad. I couldn't yeah. be more glad. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll tell you stories. We have a meeting coming up, you and I, in August. I'll tell you some stories then yeah. about other. Things Are you going to doing. her uh, memorial? Uh, typically, we don't. Oh. Yeah. It's in church, so who would know? Yeah. I think it's in church. When is it? A week from Sunday. The ninth. The ninth. What time of day is it? Uh. I forgot. I'll look it up. Uh, but I think hundreds of people will be there. Yeah, pass along. So no one, no one would know. And typically, when when our assignment is over, we're required to sever our relationship with the family. Wow. She was amazing. She was. She was just totally amazing. Uh, we'll, we'll tell each other stories about her. Did she tell you about those birds outside the window? Oh, yeah. She had me go out when you put something with squirrels also. Squirrels. She would have me go out there and chase them away. Yeah. And the rose bush? She tell you about that? You know, she talked about the fruit trees and how she... She made me plum jam last year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, you'll fall down. Don't be picking plums. She was. It was so hard not to tell you. I remember, I remember the very, very first time you mentioned Verna, and you were saying, my friend Verna, Mill Valley, 98, and I'm going, click, 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 click. Yeah, it's yeah, got to yeah. be the same That's same Verna. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh. Listen, I'm very glad you're having a good time. Did you? Do you need more? You want another minute to finish? Another minute. <laughs> Tell me, not your experience, but what was your experience of sharing with the other person? Fun what? Enlightening. Enlightening, there you go. Inspiring. Inspiring. Connecting. 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 I thought you said nothing. I thought. <laughs> <laughs> Connecting. <laughs> Connecting. I'm happy to hear that. <laughs> what else? You made me uh, realize that um, even. 20 seconds of quiet is, is valuable, and yeah. not to look for a long 60 minutes of meditating. 
Yeah. There you go. Every and what else? Respect for the inside of others. Respect for the inside of others. Yeah, it helps. It helps me just go there again. It helps me go to that relaxed mind and place. Uh, I share with another person my relaxed mind and their relaxed mind. So I am really learning from this. Yeah. I'm curious. We were curious if because each of us shared something and it had to do with nature and outside, and I was. How many people was outside? How many people were inside? How many people were in a situation where it was very quiet? Or a situation where it was very noisy, like a bike race or a rock concert? Um... Uh, hmm? Well, for mine it was music, which could could be really soft and gentle. It could be really loud too. Or a situation that involved music. Yeah. Situation that involved music, or a situation at um, at some particular transitional time, like child, some a child being born, or a person dying. in the morning, you know, or just kissing your loved one goodbye, mm-hmm. you know, just there's so many moments and it's all, I think it's all about the breath and, and the noticing and the cultivation. I but, think, Andrew, that's really important to say that there are many, many moments and so fast that we don't notice them or we, or, or they're not, they're not uh, fireworks. They're just a moment of peace of mind. What else did you notice that you want to tell here? Wait, wait, wait. Anne's going to bring you the... (laughs) What I felt was just the power of listening, the beauty of just listening to another person's story. Just being there to listen. It was beautiful. Listening to another person's story. Um, I really experienced a lot of appreciation and gratitude in the in the sharing. You know, it makes sense to me about the uh, about <coughs> well, both the appreciation, but also the gratitude that people are, are, remind us. You know what? It is possible to have peace in this very life, in this very body. Not every second, every minute, forever and ever, and we keep getting startled all the time. But we talk about the, well, here, here's another way to say it. Uh, Listening, reflecting on one's own moment where the mind was actually peaceful. It didn't need anything to make it happier. It was just it didn't, well, actually, you could even say half that sentence. It didn't need anything. I think that the mind that doesn't need anything. I've been thinking about that the 
23rd Psalm begins, the second line of the 23rd Psalm is, I shall not want. You know, that I'll have all my needs will be taken care of. My cup runneth over. That I think that means that the state of grace is where you don't need it to be otherwise. That's what it is. It's just like this. And the, you know, the, the story, the, I, I, I told you about Verna, but it seemed to me in her life she didn't need it to be otherwise. Uh, I think that, not, that it is a possibility in this very life is an enormous sense of, source of courage that if, uh, if, I, if we listen to uh, Dharma stories, which are wonderful, I love to tell that story of the Buddha sitting on the night of his enlightenment and all of these, um, all of the things that uh, usually disturb the mind, all kinds of frightening thoughts and lustful thoughts and disquieting thoughts, all kinds of, attacks of all the confusions that confuse the mind uh, assail him and he sits there uh, in, uh, and just goes through them as if to say, that's all right. He actually in the, in the scripture puts his hand down and says, I have a right to be here. He says, I'm not afraid, he says to Mara. I see your armies and I'm not afraid. And uh, it's inspiring, that story. And so I tell it to people all the time, whether or not it's literally happened to Siddhartha Gautama or not that way. It's a lovely, beautiful metaphor for that. But I think that people do that all the time. People do that all the time. They sit in all kinds of circumstances, and their mind is not um, confused by what's going on. A friend of mine told me oh, 20 or 30 years ago that a friend of hers, her friend Rosemary, uh, was a, uh, a Catholic nun, as is my friend. And she said, my friend Rosemary died at that time, just recently, a young woman of uh, breast cancer, I think. And uh, uh, Mary, my friend, was there with her at the time. And Rosemary's mother was there with her at the time. And I remember her telling me that the mother said to her daughter as she was struggling through some last minutes, said, um, it's all right, Rosemary, you're just dying. And I was so moved by that. And I thought, wow, what would it take to be able to do that? You know, What would it take to be able to do that? And then I thought, well... You know, in that case, I, I think, I, well, first of all, who knows where Rosemary's mother got her strength. And you could say, well, she was a believer in an afterlife and, um, and encouragement that you often see on gravestones where it says, uh, nearer my God to thee, and maybe that was sustaining her. But how about these things happen, you know, uh, that... Uh, my sense is uh, that the the people I've been with as they're dying, who didn't have a problem, but who wish they weren't, but
But they were, were, you know, this is what's happening. My friend Martha said to me, we were maybe the last day of her life, we were talking at, and I was at her bedside, and she was say, making some perfectly good sense, and then she began to ramble, as people often do in their you know, last days, and full of drugs. And she said, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, I think I wasn't making any sense just then. And I said, well, you weren't, sweetheart, but that's really all right, you know, uh, given your situation. She said, oh, well, but I'm afraid I'll be boring to you. <laughs> I said, sweetheart, you got more important things to worry about than whether or not you're boring to me. <laughs> but, you know, it seemed to me it was so touching that in the last minutes of our lives we worry about whether we're boring to the people we love or did we wear the right underwear or the right, the right nightgown to pass out of this life or something. But... Um, but to be able to to not to be able to have your wit about you up to the end, I'm worried about being bored. No, don't worry. Uh, and I wouldn't have said that. Maybe I did say you have other things to think about. But you don't really, because there's nothing you can do about it. You're just dying, Rosemary. I wish I felt I was ready to be ready to do that with any of my people. You know, I I, I think everybody hopes not to be able to do that with. Uh, with their kin, and out of order. When people die at 99, it's not problematic because it's not out of order, you know, that somehow. But there's a certain wistfulness about it, you know. Uh, and certainly it's a confirmation that it's going to happen with all of us. Having a peaceful mind that can appreciate what's going on. I haven't been carrying this around for a couple of weeks now because it was my birthday. Um, oh no, actually it was my wedding anniversary. And uh, apparently it was in, uh, it was in, it was in, it said it in the Shambhala Sun magazine because there was an article about meet the teacher a month or two ago in the Shambhala Sun. And it was very short and uh, I had to write a one, one paragraph summary biography of my life, so I did, and uh, I wrote the last line, my husband and I are coming up on being married for 60 years. So I got a uh, happy anniversary Sylvia and Seymour card that says, together is such a beautiful place to be, and it's signed from all these people, it says all the best to you both, from Bobby, congratulations on this wonderful season, from Barbara, and Mazel Tov from Carolyn, and congratulations and best wishes forever from Vanessa. And this is the um, Bedford Hills Correctional Facility Jewish Community. These are women who are incarcerated in a maximum security prison in New York State, who most of them have life sentences. And I visit with them for an afternoon every time I'm on the East Coast. They're, their chaplain is a friend of mine. And I spend the afternoon with them. And for the most part, they're women who did something stupid when they were 18 or 19 years old. For the most part, they're people who came from very difficult um, backgrounds. And uh, at 18 or 19 made some really unwise move 
that somebody else made that they were an accomplice to, and now they're spending their life in jail because somebody died. And uh, I'm very hopeful that Mr. Obama is beginning to talk about prison reform. It has to be, I mean, not only reform about minor drug um, sentences, but about something that you did 30 years ago when you were a child. And, um, but what touches me so much about the card, why I've been really carrying it with me and keeping it, is that in the card, they're all of them saying, congratulations, have a wonderful rest of your life. They're in a very unwonderful situation, all of them. They're in a supremely unwonderful situation. And I said, I see they've doodled it all up and made hearts. And when I come, they're always very happy to see me. And um, they, and I, you know, they make such a fuss. I say, you know, what is it? You know, it's just me. You know, make us a big fuss. They said, well, you know, you're just so much fun to be with. And I think, ah, you know, I'm there once a year. And I hear that, and I think I'd like to go all the time because. Um, but to be able to be in a difficult situation and look out of it, when they, when they, we, we meditate a lot. We sit part of the day, and they say, I have to have this meditation practice, they said, because there's nothing peaceful about being in this facility. It's noisy day and night. People are giving you, you know, instructions and laws, and bells ring. You can't go from A to B, except if a bell rings, and then you can pass. They said, there's no possibility for a peaceful outside in this place. The only thing I could have is a peaceful inside. And I am so touched by that, that they somehow got it, not from me, from Joanna and from their own experience. Now, one more thing I wanted to tell you about. Uh, and I've, I've been reading another book that I've just, I'm, I'm surprised I haven't read sooner. I knew about, but somehow I haven't read. This is called The Trauma of Everyday Life. And... Uh, it's written by Mark Epstein, and Mark Epstein is a psychiatrist in New York City who's about the same age as oh my friend Jack Cornfield and Joseph Goldstein and Dan Goldman and uh, John Kabat-Zinn. They were all people getting involved in Dharma practice about the same time. They're all 10 years, a little bit more older, younger than I am. And Mark is a psychiatrist, and he's a psychiatrist that knows a lot about Buddhism. And he's talking about, um, I don't want to read you these whole three pages because we haven't time. I'll start here. He's talking about one of the central paradoxes of Buddhism is that the bare attention of the meditative mind changes the psyche by not trying to change anything at all. Do you get that sentence? That's a very important sentence. Changes the psyche by not trying to change anything at all. It's like visiting, uh, a hospice worker visiting. Can't do anything. You can maybe make the person more comfortable, but you cannot change the situation. The steady application of the meditative posture, like the steadiness of an attuned parent, allows something inherent in the mind's potential to emerge, and it emerges naturally as if left alone properly in a good enough way. 
when the, that means, you know, it is unnatural. Well, you got what it means. The, when the Dalai Lama summarized his scholarly teachings on Buddhist thought with the paradoxical induction, injunction, transform your thoughts but remain as you are, he was pointing to this phenomenon. The thoughts he was after are rooted in the way we seek relief by finding someone or something to blame. The trauma within us prompts us to search for a culprit, and we too often attack ourselves or our loved ones in an attempt to eradicate the problem. The splitting of the self against self or against its, wor its world only perpetuates suffering. In other words, making a culprit. You know, it's like this. You know, it's so hard to say. It's just like this, fully, you know. The Buddha's, the Buddha's method was to do something out of the ordinary, to make his mind like that of a mother. You remember thinking about the metta sutta, just as a mother would give her life to support her one and only child. To make his mind like his mother, the most taken-for-granted person in our world, but the missing ingredient in his, you know, his mother presumably died a few days after he was born. And he was raised by his mother's sister, presumably in the most devout way, carefully. And But Mark Epstein is making the point that, either symbolically or actually, that being raised by your mother is important. Just being raised by the most caring of people. He gets up and goes on to say, maybe I shouldn't read this, I'll just summarize it for you. Adopting this stance creates room for a transformation that's waiting to happen, one that cannot occur unless one's inner environment is recalibrated in a specific way. This understanding is not entirely outside the range of contemporary psychotherapy. It was articulated with great care by one of the first therapists to actually observe mothers interacting with their infants in a clinical setting. D.W. Winnicott, a British pediatrician and child analyst, wrote a lot about the quality of attunement he saw in good enough mothers, a quality he called mother's primary preoccupation. And he goes on, I won't read it to you exactly, but I'll tell you what he says. He says, and I, I don't actually think it couldn't have been the Buddha's adoptive mother, because what he's saying is that what's necessary for children especially as infants, since they don't have any wherewithal to understand what's going on, to figure out what's going on, and not to be frightened by whatever is going on, that they suddenly, they're contented, but then suddenly they're hungry, or wet, or cold, or they have cramps, or they have, um, uh, what do they call, the kind when babies, colic, uh, and they don't know what's going on. And, uh, but they don't feel good in their little bodies. And among the other things that mothers do, in addition to feeding them and changing them and drying them and uh, doing whatever you have to do, is you get held by your mother. And not only held and warmly and comfortably held against them, but you get soothed by them. You get soothed by a comfortable voice saying, you're gonna be all right, you're gonna be fine could also be their father, by the way. I mean, uh, uh, but someone really in charge of the situation and not frightened. And what, what his point is that psychodynamically, developmentally, as an infant, when you don't have your ego to say, hold on, it's going to be all right, uh, you're going to come through this, 
that the the uh, being enveloped in your mother's ego, which holds you in that kind of it's all right, Rosemary. This is go. This is fine. This is okay. Steadies your own mind until you internalize that ability to be with distress and take care of it, so that when you have speech and you have a, and you have cognition. And it's a few years later. Someone, the the uh, uh, some medical worker says, "I'm going to give you an injection now. It's going to hurt for a second, but you're going to be all right." And they do it, and you're all right. And it was all better, and it pretty much is. Or you have to start to have dental work, and they say, "Listen, it's going to take a little bit, but you're going to be all right. Whatever you have, we're going to give you some medicine. You're going to be all right." So, on the top of the discomfort and whatever it is that you have. You don't have the distraught mind of thinking, ah, my body's in pain and I don't know what to do. Someone says you're going to be all right. You have the internal wherewithal to say, okay, I'm, I don't have to rail against this. And what he's saying is that mindfulness, by its very nature, non-coercive acceptance of the moment, it's like this, it's like this, it's like this, it's like this, is like being your own mother. Isn't that really a really very interesting idea? I had not thought about that. Doesn't that make sense, Mo? I really like this. I was up very early this morning continuing to read this. because I think The trauma of everyday life. Because what he wants to say, what he seems to be saying in this book, is that sometimes we think of trauma as being, well, someone has just come back from Iraq, or someone, uh, you know, there are terrible traumas that happen to people where uh, I don't even want to mention some of the terrible traumas that happen. Somebody, somebody's child is shot on the way home from school in East Oakland because they walk down the wrong street. Someone comes to your door and knock, knock, knock. I mean, terrible traumas happen. But that's not the trauma of everyday life. That's extraordinary traumas of particular awful situations. He's talking about the trauma of everyday life, of discovering that your body hurts from time to time, or that you feel frightened about this, or that that happens, that all the growing up hurdles that we all went through, nobody went from being an infant to being a fairly adept adult without a lot of disappointments and a lot of things that we had to get over. If I said, how many people here could think of something that you had to get over in your life in order to continue? How many people can think of something they had to get over in their life in order to continue? Everybody gets over disappointments and pain. I sometimes find out from someone who's been a friend for a while, they say, oh, yeah, I spent uh, two years in bed from 11 to 13 because I had some sort of strange bone developmental problem. But then this and that, I had to be homeschooled and that everyday life has everyday problems of the whole variety that we hear when we share. And just, he's making the point, just having come out from our parents and just growing up enough to see that in this world, magically, you don't feel better. You know, the, 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 uh, one of the ways of talking about psychodynamic thinking about infants is that the world's pretty magic, you know? You, they don't think, I feel bad, now I'll cry. They, they just cry when they feel bad. But they cry, and then magically, so to speak, they get fed and changed and wiped up and carried around and, and soothed. 
and then they're comfortable again, and then they're uncomfortable, and they cry, and magically they're soothed. If that happens regularly enough, and they're soothed regularly enough, the theory is they get to be able to trust the world, they get to be able to deal with discovering that their parents are not attached to them by as they were previously in the womb, and that it's okay anyway. I'm reading a book called The Tender Bar that someone gave. Did you read it? It's beautiful. It's such beautiful writing. And it's about a boy who's uh, essentially ab abandoned by his father in ways that are so painful, and his own memoir. And it's beautifully written. I read you this one, um, one paragraph, and then we'll finish. When he's a small boy, he's talking about, though I kept my feelings bottled tight, Eventually, those feelings fermented, then fizzed to the surface in the form of odd behavior. I turned overnight into a compulsive and neurotic child. I set about trying to fix Grandpa's house, the place where he and his single mother lived, straightening rugs, restacking magazines, retaping furniture. My cousins laughed about my neatness, but I wasn't being neat. I was going crazy. Besides doing what I could do to make the house less offensive to my mother, I was trying to put order to chaos, a quest that led me ultimately to seek a more dramatic rearrangement of reality. I was very touched by that, you know, that we are always trying to, to somehow soothe ourselves and make life trustable, that the rug should be in the right place, that the... If the, if the people are not in the right place, at least the rug will be in the right place and the magazines will be in the right place. And people develop one kind of, if I eat this but not that, or if I step over every crack in the street, I'll somehow control the environment. And the, I think that the bottom line discovery is we can't control the environment, not inside or outside. And you know, it's like um, you never know really what's going to happen that's all of a sudden good or all of a sudden wasn't desirable. But to be able to say, you know, that's how it is and you don't know. And anyway, I will step into the for future with confidence. That's the big job. And the, the, the idea that it's our own mindfulness practice that gives us the inner equipment to be our own mothers and say, you can so do this. I, I find that very touching. Anyway, it's after 11. And are we here next week? Yes. Yes, I'm here too. Yes. Maybe next week. Well, no, we did move off the first noble truth. We did the first and the second and the third. That was the important thing about the sharing. What everybody shared is that peace is possible in this very life. Not enduringly, but here a moment, there a moment. And once you know it and you remember it, it gives you confidence. It's a doable thing. There we go. Next week. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.